0: Well, I was uh, raised in California and uh, I came to Texas to go to grad school and never thought I would remain here, but obviously God has his plan, his will, but there's this very, very offensive stereotype that exists about people who were raised in California, that all of us grew up surfing. Surfing. All of us grew up having long hair and wearing surf t-shirts and surf shorts all the time, vans for shoes or flip-flops. It's a very, very offensive stereotype as a Californian. (laughs) So I did grow up surfing um, (laughs) and with long hair and surf shorts and all that. Um, And here's the thing about surfing. I I I wouldn't call myself a surfer. In high school and college, I surfed a little bit is as surfers, what we did, and this is the days before cell phones, that when we would go to the beach, we would listen to the AM radio. And on the radio, they would give the surf report. And what they would tell us on the surf report was where the waves were that day. So they would say, hey, pleasure point. They've got these kind of waves, four-foot waves. At this place, it's flat like glass. And they would give the surf report, and based on that report, my friends and I would go to where the waves were. So here's the thing about surfing. We never go to a place that's totally flat and say, all right, now we're gonna make some waves. We're gonna create waves. We simply would go to where the waves already were and enjoy riding those waves. And in a very similar vein, when it comes to making disciples, that's true as well. We're not out trying to do the work of God and create the work of God. We simply are invited by God to participate In making disciples. God is at work always all around us. God is at work at your work. God's at work in our communities. God is at work around the world. And so we're not called to make the work. God is simply saying, I just want you to participate in the work. And so when I say go, you go, not because I'm asking you to make work and make it happen. I'm asking you to participate in the work I'm already doing around the world. And today we're going to be in uh, Matthew 28 and a bunch of other passages as well. And we're going to look at this fact. Last week we looked at the fact that God has said to us, Jesus said, I've got all authority. I got this. And he says, I got your back. I'll be with you always. And in the middle he says, so the command is to make disciples of Jesus of all ethnicities. To make committed students, committed students who follow a teacher, Jesus Christ, and are transformed by his teaching. Who enjoy life on life. Just like Jesus walked for three and a half years with his disciples, God is calling us to, whether with random people or regular people, to walk with people and to invest and pour in the life of Jesus Christ and others. And that's what it means to make disciples. But in this passage in verses 18 through 20, really 19 through 20, there are what's known as three participles, verbal nouns, that give us the how. So he told us what to do, make disciples, and over this week, next week, and the week after, he's going to tell us how to do it. He's going to tell us it's composed of going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And today we're going to look at this aspect of going. And the word going there is very, uh, probably you may understand it. It's the same root word as the word porous that we would use in English. So if a piece of cloth is porous, it means water will go right through it. Or air will go right through it. And it literally means just to to go. When God says go, you just go. That's what it means. You don't need to really study the word. But it is a verbal noun, a participle. So we're going to look at two aspects of it today. The first part is this. The word exists before the command to make disciples. All the other participles exist after the command. So because it exists in the Greek before the command to make disciples, a lot of commentators and scholars say it carries what's known as, and write this down, the imperatival force. What does that mean? He says it takes the command. It's a command to actually go. And so the sermon today is entitled Going Means Not Staying. Going means not staying. So here's the first point here from Matthew 28. Because it carries the command force along with make disciples, go, comma, and make disciples. It's a command to go and make disciples. It's a command to leave where you are Staying where you are and now to go and look where God is at work, led by God, led by the spirit and say, God, where are you at work? And I want to join you in that work. And so it's go make disciples. And the first passage we're going to look at today is Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter eight, that I believe illustrates this concept of go make disciples, go make disciples, Acts chapter eight. If you have it, just turn there in your Bibles or your devices, Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter 8. So go, make disciples. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost. It's another reiteration of the Great Commission. We'll read it in a couple weeks. So Jesus says, as he is now preparing to ascend to the Father, he says, hey, before I go, Here are my last words. He says, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here where we are right now. Also Judea, and then even to the uttermost. And so he gives them the Great Commission there. So he says, it's not just a Jerusalem thing. It's not just a Jewish thing. I want you to go beyond Jerusalem and even further still. But here's something that gets in the way of all of us fulfilling the Great Commission. Here's something that gets in the way of all of us sharing the love of Jesus Christ with others. And being on mission with God is comfort. So in Acts chapter 1, they receive, 1-8, they receive the commission reminder. But in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, for seven chapters, they still remain in Jerusalem. Jesus says, Judea and the uttermost. He's basically telling them to go. And yet they remain in Jerusalem why? is because Jerusalem is comfortable and convenient. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't just want the comfort and convenience package on our cars. We want the comfort and convenience package on our lives as well. Somebody say amen. And if you can't say amen, at least say ouch. Yeah, we all know that. My wife and I just bought a bed uh, about six or seven months ago. We had a certain budget, and what do we have in that budget? We said, based on how much we want to spend, we want to get the most uncomfortable, rigid, hard bed that meets our budget. No, of course not. We said, here's our budget. We want the most comfortable bed that's going to provide a good night's sleep. So our culture says, hey, here's all these things, comfort and convenience, your bed. And so what kept them was comfort and convenience. And very often, if we're honest with ourselves, When God says to you through the spirit, hey, go talk to that other person in the office next door. Hey, you see that person in the the office cafeteria eating lunch by themselves? You go sit with them. Ah, well, I don't even know them that well. I know we did a project together like three months ago, but you know, and so it's that comfort. So this is what God does. God did it with Jonah, and God does it with the early Christians. In chapter eight, verse one, look at this. He says, now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. We see the first martyr, Stephen, the deacon. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Jerusalem, Judea, and uttermost. They won't go, so what happens? Persecution comes, and what does it say there in verse uh, 1? They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, south and north. Now, here's the thing. Here's the guy that shows up on the scene. His name is Philip. Philip is a deacon. He's not an apostle, he's not a pastor, he's not an elder, he what we would call a layperson. He's just a member of the church. So Philip now goes to Samaria, north. And if you know the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, it was a very tense relationship. Just like when Jonah was asked to go to the Ninevites, he didn't wanna go because he felt like they were not worthy of God's mercy and grace. So here's this tension, and yet Philip goes being led by the Lord. And what happens to Philip the Evangelist in Samaria? He enjoys great success. He enjoys great success. And then what happens in um, verse 14, Peter and John hear about it and they come up to do kind of the follow-up work. And here's the thing, I don't know about you all, but generally when I'm enjoying success in making disciples, when I'm enjoying success in ministry, I'm gonna enjoy it for a while, amen? I'm gonna just like just enjoy it, relax in it. But what happens? Look at verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get ready and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he's in Samaria. Jerusalem is to the south. He says, I want you to start heading south, southwest towards Gaza. And if I were my, in, that, in those shoes, as Philip, I'd be like, uh, God, we're enjoying unparalleled success. The word is being proclaimed. The gospel is being preached. And people responding and coming to faith shouldn't I stay here for a little bit longer and at least enjoy this and kind of even keep it going? And God says, you know what? No, I want you to go to Gaza. And there's a reason, verse 27. So he got ready and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading Isaiah the prophet. Then, the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So he obeys the leading of an angel, the Lord. He heads south. And I'm imagining like a truck stop. He's there enjoying perhaps a Slurpee. And he is in his chariot. And he's beginning to head south. And he runs into this Ethiopian eunuch. And so you want to talk about cross-cultural ministry. We don't know Philip's ethnic descent, whether he was Greek or Jew, because Philip is a Greek name. Uh, We don't know exactly where he's from, but it's cross-cultural in the fact he's going to the Samaritans, and now he's reaching out to this Ethiopian eunuch who is a Jewish, perhaps, convert who's come to Jerusalem to worship. And he's probably very wealthy as well because if you're imagining, he's like actually doing the chariot. He's not really doing the chariot. He probably has a driver who's riding it, and he's sitting in the back reading Isaiah, and this is what Philip comes upon. And then he says in verse 29, then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And and Joel, you're gonna love this. Verse 30, Philip ran up. That's why all good Christians are runners. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? So notice this, God is already at work in the life of this Ethiopian eunuch, in this life of this official in the court of Candace. God is at work. And like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, he says, uh, we see that he's already acknowledging the Jewish God. He says in verse one, he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me and invited Philip to come up and sit with him? So he invites him to come up in the chariot. Now the passage scripture, which he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, like a lamb that's silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say of this? Of himself or someone else? Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture he preached Jesus to him. You just put a pencil right there. He's reading, this Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. You can look at it later on. He's reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand it. God places Philip participating in this right at this moment. Verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered that the chariot stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip was well and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So apparently this Ethiopian eunuch, upon hearing that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus, places his faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Now, in those days, if you were what's called a Jewish proselyte, if you became a Jew and you were not born a Jew, They understood this concept of baptism. So we don't know, perhaps that's where he understood this from. But he understood that I've made a decision internally, and now I want to make it public to everybody. And he sees this water, he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And he's baptized. So again, Philip simply, led by an angel of the Lord, even though he's enjoying great success in Samaria, he says, go south towards Gaza on the road, on this desert road, meets this Ethiopian eunuch who just happens to be reading out loud from Isaiah 53. Spirit says, go join him. And he's able to lead this person to Jesus Christ, this Ethiopian eunuch. And we know that he went back. And that's why the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is one of the oldest Christian denominations. He went back, I'm sure, witness to others. Now look at verse 39. I love this verse. When they came up out of the water and I don't understand how this happened, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch no longer saw him but went on his way rejoicing. Philip enjoys great success in Samaria in ministry and making disciples. God says, now go south, southwest. He goes, he leads a very wealthy, influential court official in Ethiopia to the Lord And before he could even rejoice and even take credit for it, because God is one who's doing the work, the Holy Spirit snatches him away and he goes even further to the West. And here's the thing, you all, because it's God who's doing the work and God who gets the uh, uh, credit and the glory, and he simply asks us to participate, that's how it should be. The credit and the glory should go to God and God just snatches them away. And it says in the, later on in the text, he's like, literally shows up and he's there in this next town. Um, where's Joel and the other pastors here? Stan's here, Stan will be preaching in a couple weeks. H- have you ever had this? And I love when this happens. The ego doesn't like this, but the s- spirit loves this. I'll be talking to somebody here at Bike City Fellowship. But I talk to somebody, you know, I meet somebody and I'm talking and they'll say something like this. I once heard this pastor say this and it changed my life. And inside, I'm saying to myself, I said that. (laughs) But you know what? I rejoice in that because I'm thinking they have forgotten who the messenger is. They simply receive the message and remember the message that God gave them. We're simply the mailman. If you've ever been there, we've got an acceptance letter to college or to grad school, right? The, The mailman is simply the messenger, the conduit of the message, So it's God who gets the credit for this and the glory for this. So he says, go, make disciples. So Philip leaves where he is, the great success in Samaria, and he obeys and he goes and then the spirit leads him to this Ethiopian eunuch who just happens to be reading because God is working in his heart and he leads him to Jesus Christ. I was talking to a Christian oil and gas executive who has a heart for the Middle East. Just a huge heart for the Middle East. And many of these countries that he has a heart for are closed to the gospel. So if you and I go and say, hey, we're missionaries, we're, we're Bible professors, and you come in, they will not allow you. They will not give you a visa into the country. But this Christian uh, oil and gas executive has said, you know what? Oil and gas, money, black gold, that's the language universal. He says, I'm gonna use that to get into these countries. And I'm gonna go, as, as an honest businessman, I'm gonna go to make business and open up inroads and all that. But I am a Christian, and I know he has said to go, and so I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna go and make disciples. I'm gonna look for opportunities to see where God is at work. Perhaps there's somebody who's had a dream about Jesus. Perhaps there's somebody who has a copy of the Bible and now has questions about it. I'm gonna be available to God. And so I asked him, I said, hey, share me just a testimony of something that God is in this, this, is Blows your mind. And he said, I was getting ready to go from where I am in the US, going overseas to the Middle East. And I prayed, I said, Lord, if there's someone you want me to talk to, just open that door on the way there. So, just like Philip, he's on the way to Gaza. And on the way there, going to the Middle East, he says, Someone sits next to me. And I'm in business class. Someone sits next to me. We begin to dialogue and open up a conversation. Hey, I'm an oil and gas executive with this company. He says, hey, I am as well. And they begin talking. And then he finds out that this guy is one of the descendants of like the princes there. So he's royalty. So he says, we swap numbers. We exchange numbers. And he said, to this day, we still text each other and all that uh, on a regular basis. And so he said, God has opened this door for me with royalty, this powerful executive there in the Middle East. Because I just prayed saying, God, I know you're at work. I believe you're at work, even where the countries that are closed to the gospel. And I'm praying that you would just open a door of opportunity for me and an opportunity to participate. And what does he do? On the way there, out of the hundreds of passengers he could have been seated next to, he says, I was seated next to this oil and gas executive who's also part of royalty there. And we continue to talk this day. And so, again, when God taps you on the shoulder, when you are filled with the Spirit and sensitive to the Spirit, and God says to you, I know you're comfortable. I know you got this and this all going on, but I want you to go. I'm at work, and you have to believe that I'm at work and join me. Participate with me in the work. Um, second point this, is this. Second point is this. Turn to Acts 28, Acts 28, the very last chapter of Acts So this participle, going, that carries the command force, it occurs 15 times in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It doesn't occur at all in John. And every other time it's translated, it's translated as having gone, because it's a past participle, past tense, having gone. So the other aspect of making disciples is not just go, make disciples. It's also having gone, make disciples, Having gone, make disciples. So wherever you are, at work, at play, in your neighborhood, in your community, in grad school, in dental school, in med school, in residency, wherever you go, having gone there, believing God has put you there as a witness, Acts 1.8, as a disciple maker, having gone, make disciples. You know the story about Paul Paul is now imprisoned in Rome. He's in shackles. He's in prison. And look at chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. Now Paul stayed two full years in his own rented lodging. So he's still part of the prison, but he's able to rent like a little apartment and welcome all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Rather than pouting, saying, here I am in prison, unjustly. He says, I'm a prisoner in chains in, 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 in uh, Ephesians 6.20. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that all of us in here are ambassadors. We represent another king and kingdom, Jesus in his kingdom, and he calls us ambassadors. And that's why in Ephesians 6.20, he calls himself an ambassador in chains because he's in prison. While he's in prison, he writes Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. He has all these people coming to him. Matter of fact, many people believe this, that when he's describing putting on the full armor of God, he's sitting in a Roman prison with a Roman guard who has a shield, a sword, all the breastplate and the helmet and all that. And he's literally describing his condition and our call to put on the full armor of God by looking at a Roman soldier who's guarding him in his cell. And so he says, I'm in jail. I'm in a Roman prison And I'm not going to pout and complain. Even while I'm here, I'm going to make disciples. God has me here for a reason. God has me in this hospital, at this dealership, at this company, in this cubicle, in this office, in this school, in this classroom for a reason. And while I'm here and God has me here, I am going to make disciples. Um. So again, stereotypes aside, I I still do love reggae music. I do love reggae music. Um, And there's a story about Bob Marley, who's probably the the icon of reggae music. And many people don't know this because he is the, the picture of reggae music. He's the picture, the image of Rastafarianism, where people worship Haile Selassie the emperor of Ethiopia, Rastafari Makonen is his full name, as Jesus Christ's second coming. He was a worshiper of Rastafari, even though Haile Selassie, when he came to Jamaica, told all the Rastafarians, don't worship me, worship Jesus. I, I'm not Jesus. He told them that. And yet many people continue, even to this day, to worship Haile Selassie as a second coming of Jesus Christ. But here's a story that has not been told about Bob Marley, because again, he's the icon of reggae music, the icon of Rastafarianism. As he was battling cancer in a Miami hospital, so imagine these long dreadlocks have now been just gone because of chemotherapy. He's sitting in a bed, and there's a nurse who's tending to him on a regular basis. She just shows up for work, caring for Bob Marley, the icon, the global icon of reggae music. And God gives her an opportunity to share the gospel with Bob Marley. And Bob Marley comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Not Rastafari, not the emperor of Ethiopia, the real Jesus Christ. Comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And even his wife and others who witnessed his last and dying breaths said, that Bob Marley, upon his death, didn't cry out for Haile Selassie, didn't cry out for Rastafari. He cried out for Jesus Christ. Jesus, come help me, is what he cried out. And here's the other reason why we know he trusted Christ, because today, he's buried in an Ethiopian Orthodox grave, and only believers are permitted to be buried in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And so here's a nurse who's just changing bedpans, who's just changing IVs, who's just bringing meals, just doing checks and temperature checks and everything, who probably was showing up, but she was a witness. She was a disciple maker and saw this man, even though he was world-renowned, as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, just like Philip, we don't even know her name, but God does. So the second point is having gone, make disciples, because the 14 other times it's used in the New Testament in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's having gone somewhere, having done this, he says, now make disciples. Now, here's a question uh, that I came up with. Last week, we looked at what we do, make disciples. We looked at why, love God, love neighbor, for the glory of God. But the question I did not answer last week is this. Why not? For many of us in here, we know Jesus Christ in all the gospels in Acts 1 has said to us, your mission, using the money you've made, using the friends you've made, using the influence and platform you have, using all that, make disciples. We know what to do. We may even know why to do it because we love God, love neighbor, because we're all about the glory of God. We may even know how to do it. We're going to learn more. So it's you go when the spirit says go, when God says go and God opens the door, you go. Or because you've gone, you make disciples. We we know how now even. But for many of us, the question is, why not? Why don't we do it? Last Sunday, I asked you, if you've been discipled, raise your hand. About 90% of the people raised their hand how many are currently making disciples, meeting with someone on a regular basis and discipling them, whether an unbeliever or believer, and maybe about 30% raise their hands. So my question is, why don't we? And here's what I came up with. Here's what I believe the Lord laid on my heart is Isaiah chapter six. So turn there in the Old Testament. The last scripture we're gonna look at today, Isaiah six. This is known as the commissioning of Isaiah. The commissioning of Isaiah commissioning of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Why don't we make disciples? If we know what we're supposed to do, even why, even partly how, why don't we? Isaiah 6.1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, history records this occurred in 739 or 740 BC. So this is an actual historical event. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above, each having six wings, with two each covered his face and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. And one called out to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of uh, is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory." Verse four. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. So here's this picture. He says, in the history of Israel, Jews specifically, he says, Uzziah was a king who brought restoration and reform. 52 years, many looked at him saying, maybe this is the king that's gonna finally get us back on track with the Lord. Now he started well, midpoint well, he didn't end very well, but they thought, maybe this is our hope. Maybe this is a guy that we can count on. What happens? He dies. And what does God do in that? He says to Isaiah and to us. He says, whoever it is that you've placed your hope in, whoever it is that you've said, this is the one that's gonna deliver us, be it a political figure, a ministry figure, a, a religious leader, whoever that is, often what God has to do is remove that person so that God can show us and that we can experience the glory of God, that God is our true king, that God is really our our pastor, someone significant in our lives. God has to remove to take that bit of hope and trust out, security out to say, you can still trust me. You can still look to me. You can still count on me. And what happens to Isaiah is this, He's given a picture of the temple in Jerusalem. And I believe this, uh, John twelve forty one says that Isaiah saw Jesus in his glory, Isaiah, uh, John twelve forty one. So I believe what he's seeing is Jesus seated on his throne. And it's this picture of holiness and glory. And I can't see it exactly how it looks, but seraphim, the burning ones, these angels with six wings, two to cover their eyes, two to cover their feet, and two to fly with, are having almost like, if you remember high school football, like a chant-off, like two sides of the stadium. And they're exclaiming and proclaiming the glory and holiness of God. And he says there in verse 4, it is so loud that the temple is shaking. Can you imagine a basketball court or a football stadium where the crowd is so loud in adoration an adulation that everything is shaking. He says, "That's what the angels are doing. They're saying God is set apart, set apart, set apart. They're emphasizing how God is set apart and unique. He is not like us. Yo, though we are made in the image of God, and though we're a little lower than God's, don't get it twisted. We're not God. He is unique and set apart all by himself. And he says this, and the whole earth is full of his glory, from the suburbs to the city." From the hood to the, ranch, to the ranches, he says, God's glory fills the earth. And for those of you who are saying, what does that mean? Just think about this way. The glory, that word glory. The Hebrew word, the root word is "kabed," which means to be weighty. And we use it this way. Like if your boss comes in tomorrow and he begins to throw his weight around, he's telling you, I'm this important. I make the decisions around you. I get to throw my weight around. That's what he's talking about. God is weighty. God is important. God is famous. And look at what his reaction is. And I pray that this is our reaction as well when we experience the majesty and glory and splendor and importance of God. Verse five, then I said, woe to me for I am ruined, torn apart because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. He's seen Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. The one of the, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which is, he had taken from the altar, the brazen altar there in the temple with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and atonement is made for your sins. It's a preview of the work of Christ. The coal Represented substitutionary sacrifice because the coal is consumed. And the seraphim is holding with tongues, not because it's too hot to touch, because it's holy. And he says he touches his lips and now he is atoned for. His guilt is taken away. And the same is true of us when we experience the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God during times of worship, private and public. And we say, God, we're unworthy. I'm a man of unclean lips. Depart from me. Jesus comes and says, because of me and my sacrifice, you're clean. You now can become boldly to the throne of grace. Now notice this. He says in verse eight, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? That us can represent perhaps a trinity, can also represent even the angels there. He says, who's gonna participate in this work? I'm already doing the work. Who is going to answer the call to participate? Who will go? And he says, Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Now get this, go and tell this people. Not stay in your comfort, stay where you're just maxing and relaxing. He says, Now go. He gives them a commission. Now get this, now get this. Often when we think God says, Go. And God's at work. We think if we go like Philip the evangelist, Philip the deacon, we're going to enjoy great success. This is what God tells Isaiah there in the rest of chapter 6. He says, you are going to go and proclaim what I tell you to proclaim. And you're not going to have success. The people are not going to respond in obedience and faith. I don't know about you, that'd frustrate me. I was asked by a staff member, he says, you know, often like you recite these things and you have these things in your sermon and then you always say, I was expecting a little bit more response to this, right? As preachers and pastors and proclaimers, when we proclaim what God has given us, we expect a response of obedience, of saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And yet God tells Isaiah, you go, you go. And here's what's gonna happen. No response, but you go. And Isaiah says, I'll go, I'll go. Because God, your glory weighs me down. My heart is consumed by your glory, by your importance and by your fame. My heart is consumed by your kingdom. My heart is consumed by your love for me. And because of that, when you say go, you ain't gonna ask me twice, God, I'll go. Even if you say you're not gonna have anybody respond, hard-headed, stiff-necked people, I'll go. Because you told me to go. Because my heart is overwhelmed by your holiness and glory. Your fame matters to me more than anything else. Your importance in my life matters than anything else. And that's my prayer, is that every Sunday you come here to gather publicly, that as our worship team leads in worship, as a call to worship is given, we ask you to stand for the reading of scripture as the word is proclaimed, you would experience glory. God would weigh your heart down just a little bit more. And if we can be honest with ourselves, I know for me, I've got idols in my heart, idols of my own kingdom, idols of my own success, Idols of my own pride that keep God's glory from flooding my heart. Is it just me? And so if you ask me, why is it that we know what to do, make disciples of all ethnicities, we even know how to do it, go, baptize, teach, we're gonna learn learn over the next couple weeks, we know how to do it, why is it that we don't? It's because our hearts, our lives are not weighed down with the most amazing relationship with the God of the universe, Lord of heaven's armies, is the most important thing. Last Sunday, uh, after the 11 o'clock, I was just sitting outside. I was walking out and I sat down outside. There was a couple that I met here very early on when I got here. I haven't talked to them in a while. And I said, Hey, what's going on? How are y'all doing? And the guy said to me, We got engaged. We got engaged. I'm like, oh, right on, congratulations. And the bride to be did this. It was one of those subtle things. Y'all seen the subtle, subtle show off thing? It wasn't like, ha! It was like more like a, yeah, we got engaged, kind of thing, right? And here's the thing I have never ever heard a groom to be tell his fiance, hey, now that I have given you this engagement ring. A bright, shining piece of glory. Now that I have said to you, you are my most important relationship and you have committed to me, I am your most important relationship. Now what I want you to do is I want you to go tell everybody and anybody that you're engaged now. I have never heard a groom-to-be tell his fiance that because now her heart has been flooded by this consuming glory. Her finger even shows this consuming glory that now she looks for opportunities to go and tell people about ha, ha, ha. And she even has opportunities having gone. Now she goes to the sales meeting with all the sales staff there and she says, in the fourth quarter, our sales rose 44%. You don't have to tell her to do that. Why? Because her heart has been consumed by an important relationship. And you all, that's my prayer for this body, is that God's glory, God becomes the most important thing in your life, and not thing, the most important relationship person in your life, that his glory would consume your heart. So that when he says, go, here I am, Said me, I'll go. You don't have to tell me twice. I'll go because your glory has weighed down my heart. I'll go. And then when you've having gone to work, having gone to residency, and God says, "Now I want you to go there. I want you to talk to this person. I want you to take that person out to lunch." You say, "I'll go. I'll go." Because God, you consume my heart. Let's pray. God, our hearts are full of idols the idols of success, the idols of significance, the idols of pleasure and comfort. We've built up our own kingdoms. God, would you forgive us? Remove those idols. God, we want you to have first place. Fill our hearts, God. Fill our hearts through the Holy Spirit that that radiance, that glory, that weight would weigh down our hearts. So we come up with excuses of why not. Supernaturally, our hearts are so consumed by you that when you say, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? God, we we raise our hands to you and say, here I am, Lord, here am I. Lord, send me. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, I'm going to the prayer team coming up, my left and right. If you need prayer over something, perhaps God is stirring in your heart. Perhaps the glory of God is just bursting through your heart right now, and you need prayer. The prayer team will be on left and right, also on the app as well. And I want to remind you that we have tables set up in the circle courtyard, but we also want you to participate in this. If you're not coming for prayer and submitting your prayer requests on the app or coming forward, We have put together a Great Commission survey because, again, as a church body, we don't want you to just know, okay, I'm supposed to make disciples, maybe even how, but we want to be able to equip you and see where you are. So if you put that QR code up there, I know normally they say, hey, don't play with your phones in church or while we're worshiping. I'm going to give you permission. So if you would scan this QR code, it's also on the app as well. And if you would take the survey, it takes like maybe two minutes to take if that If you just take the survey, because we as a staff, as leaders here, we want to equip you on making disciples. We want to see how we can help you in that. So I'm giving you permission. Take your phones out. Scan the QR code right now if you're not coming up for prayer. And while the music plays, if you take that survey or again, come up for prayer.